Changing your perspective can change your life. Take Frederick Douglass, the renowned abolitionist. At one point in his life, he was enslaved and was close to the breaking point. He had a a very bad opinion of himself. He had an abusive master who would beat him regularly. His uh, mentality was close to the end. And one powerful day, he had a change of perspective. He remembered his dignity as a human being, and this change in perspective enabled him to repurpose himself to escaping slavery. Eventually, he was able to escape and became the abolitionist, the powerful thinker that this decision, this perspective changed. It changed his life, and it changed the course of America as a result. Or Johnny Erickson Tata. The famous Christian writer and evangelist, a quadriplegic after a diving accident. She's in the hospital, despairing and depressed as she sees her once active life dissipate. In a matter of seconds, she's discouraged. But then in a conversation with a friend, her perspective changes She begins to see her trial as an opportunity, something that God is going to redeem. He will redeem her suffering and enable her to live life for other people, being an encouragement. This changed perspective changed the course of her life, launching her into a ministry that enabled her to proclaim the gospel to so many people, a word of encouragement See, as people saw God's redemption in Christ, changing your perspective can change your life. Today, in God's word, Peter offers us a change of perspective. In our text, Peter addresses the threat of persecution head on and the fears that might come up as a result of these threats of all people. Peter knows the temptation to draw back from Christian convictions out of fear of suffering, to withdraw in the hopes of avoiding persecution. After all, this was the man who denied Christ three times. He gets it. But as we see throughout the scriptures, Peter's perspective changes. Persecution is not something in his mind to be avoided or feared. It is mysteriously Part of God's purpose is for the church. And if we take this perspective, then we are freed from fear and freed for an attractively holy presence in our communities. A godly perspective on Christian suffering changes the way we live. Changing your perspective can change your life. So with that in mind, looking to God's word to help change our perspective, please hear with me now God's word. You can find it if you're following along in 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to be reading verses 12 through 19 together. Please direct your attention now to the word of God. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. 
But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the, right, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Brothers and sisters, thus far in the reading of God's word, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Spirit of illumination, come upon us as we examine your word. I pray that even now you would be changing our hearts and our minds to anticipate suffering as some part of your mysterious plan for us. And we pray specifically for those Christians who are undergoing great suffering even now as we hear your word preached. Would you, through your spirit, grant them peace? Would you help us this morning to apprehend true things about you? Minister to us deeply, we pray, in the name of Christ. Amen. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. With these words, Peter begins the final section of his letter. As we've looked at this letter over the last several months, we, were, we can look back and see Peter's teaching up to this point. In the introduction to the letter, in the first few chapters of First Peter, he has given us a profound theological lesson on the exile's identity in Christ, who we are as Jesus' holy people. Then, in the main part of his letter that we spent the bulk of our time on, Peter taught us our calling in the world as exiles, living lives of attractive holiness before society. And now, using the same transitionary word that he used in chapter 2 to begin the main section of the letter, that word beloved, Peter now uses that same transitionary word to begin his conclusion. And in the conclusion of his letter, for the next several verses through the end of chapter 5, Peter increases his focus on glory. That word appears six times in the conclusion. We're going to be looking at it in three different sermons. Six times we hear about glory. Because as Christians suffer... We need to focus on the glory that is ours in Christ, not on our earthly circumstances of painful trial. This is the change of perspective that Peter offers to us. And here, in our passage this morning, he offers us specifically a godly perspective on persecution. I think you can summarize Peter's godly perspective on persecution in three phrases. And you'll see those written in your bulletin. Probable suffering, present judgment, and personal vindication. Now on the surface, 
At least two out of those three don't seem very comforting. But Peter offers all three of these things as a deeply pastoral encouragement. When we begin to see persecution from God's point of view, we first see that suffering is probable. He says, do not be surprised. Don't be caught off guard because suffering is likely That's an interesting change because throughout the letter up to this point, Peter has generally said that suffering is possible, but now he changes. He has a pretty realistic perspective of their future, and he says it is now not only possible, it is probable. It's probable because their faith was bumping up against a pagan society. Their Christian perspective, their Christian living went against the grain of a culture. And so, because of that, persecution was likely. Indeed, persecution is likely anywhere that the Christian faith bumps up against a culture whose values are radically different from the Christian values that believers embody. We can look across the globe and see places like this, places like China, certain countries in the Middle East, or for these particular readers, enduring three centuries of persecution off and on in the Roman Empire. Now, why is it encouraging for Peter to say that suffering is probable? I think it's encouraging because Peter wants to save us all from emotional whiplash. Christianity doesn't promise an easy life in this world. Now, your life might improve as more and more people become Christians and society changes, ideally becoming more just and merciful. You should be able to find a deep and rich community in the church, fulfilling some of your communal needs in the people of God, and you will be filled with the joy of the Spirit, but at the same time, your faith brings you in contact, direct contact, with spiritual warfare. Inevitably, we will all enter the new heavens and the new earth bearing scars of that warfare. For some Christians, it will be the physical scars. For others, it will be emotional scars, but scars nonetheless. And if you believe that becoming a Christian will instantly resolve all of your problems, then you're going to be tempted to give up when things get hard. Or you'll be tempted to think that maybe God has abandoned you. Maybe your faith isn't real because you're experiencing persecution and trial. Or you'll be tempted to think that God has abandoned his promises. You might think that maybe he's not as good as you once thought. Probable suffering is encouraging because it shows that God hasn't lost control. In fact, present suffering is actually a sign of God's activity. It's a sign, according to the text, of God's present judgment. Let's look at verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Now, what does that mean? At first, that doesn't seem any to make any sense. Why would God judge us? Isn't the point of the gospel that Christ died for us so that we are not judged? Well, according to Peter, here is the gospel. Christ died for us so that we would be judged as innocent and therefore not punished. 
In American courts, there's a difference between judging and sentencing, and it's similar here. Judgment here refers to a judge making a decision, not the consequences of that decision. Biblically, as we look throughout the Old and the New Testament, God's judgment is more than simply sentencing people to condemnation in hell. Biblically, God's judgment is his testing of humanity to reveal his faithful people, to see who his faithful people really are. We, because of the way that our culture tends to form us, we tend to think in terms of one final judgment. We read judgment through the lens of the book of Revelation. But what Peter is saying is that God's process of judgment is actually starting now, and it begins with the church. This accords with scripture. As we look through the scriptures, Jesus says in John chapter 12, now is the time for the judgment of this world. Meaning that from Jesus's death and resurrection until his second coming, God is beginning the work of sifting the world, shaking it to reveal his people. If you've ever panned for gold or searched through sand looking for shark's teeth or shells, you've done something like this. You, you put the, the mixture into the pan and then you shake the pan so that the sand runs out and the only things left in are the pieces of substance. God is beginning this work of revealing his true people. He is shaking the world and he begins with the church and works his way outward. John Calvin says the beginning of the Reformation should be in the church. This is why Peter, in the first verse of our passage, refers to to the fiery trial as a test. God is testing us. So according to Peter, right now, In our day and age, the church is undergoing God's discerning eye. When we suffer for the name of Christ, he is testing our faith, but we look forward to a positive verdict in the future. When God will declare us not guilty in Christ, this is the gospel. Now, the world is not undergoing God's judgment now, but it will in the future. It will experience God's judgment in the future and also God's punishment. So a shorthand way that you can think about it. The teaching of this passage is that in the church we face present judgments and future glory. And in the world they face future judgment and future punishment. Why? Why does God choose to work in this way, testing the church now through the painful trials of persecution? Well, we don't fully know. We'd have to be honest. If we look through the scriptures, there's not a full answer to that. Some of these things are enclosed in the secret mind and will of God, but the scriptures do give us some partial answers. One of the partial answers is that this gives people time to repent Listen to verse 17. If it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And verse 18, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? 
God is using this time to give more people time to repent. Our Lord, our loving Father, a good creator, according to the text, desires all people to be saved. And so if you are listening right now, and you have not trusted in Christ to be your personal Savior, to save you from your sins, so that you can avoid the coming judgment that's promised in this text, I, I beg you, please, now, repent. Please repent now so that you can escape the judgment and enjoy future glory instead of future punishment. That's one of the reasons why God delays to give you time to repent. But there's another reason. And I think the other reason that God acts in this way, exposing the church now to judgment through persecution, it's to give the church time to prove our faith. And if this sounds intimidating, think of it as a sober encouragement from someone who is rooting for you. It's like a sports coach who sends a junior player out onto the field saying, I want you to be a part of the starting lineup today. Now, it might be hard for that player to rise to the challenge, right? Junior player, starting lineup, but it's actually a sign that the coach trusts this player It's a sign of the coach's confidence. It's an honor. And when we suffer, it's an honor for us to be tested. It shows us that God actually anticipates us being faithful. In fact, he will see to it. His present judgment anticipates a personal vindication for you and for me. Because even during the test, your faith is shown to be true. And as we read the scriptures, hear how glory is woven into even present suffering. Not only is your future glorious, but your present experience has glory too. Look at verses 13 and 14. You now share in Christ's sufferings. This isn't a pointless thing that you might be going through. You share in Christ's sufferings now and you will share in his glory. But we're not left alone for suffering now because you, according to the text, possess the spirit of glory and of God. Even now, think back upon the Old Testament. Those Old Testament images of the spirit of God filling the temple with glory. That same spirit of glory now fills you. Your vindication has already begun in Christ. Yet again, present suffering and present glory are linked. You can see why this is good, necessary news. Why the exiles needed this godly perspective on their situation. Most of us haven't experienced persecution for Christ the way that these Christians would or that our brothers and sisters across the world do. In this year alone, in the year 2020, two Nigerian pastors have been killed because of their faith, leaving behind families, loved ones, because they were pastors. They were particularly targeted. In China, since 2018, at least 200 members of Early Rain Covenant Church have been arrested. One of their elders was sentenced to four years in prison. Their pastor was sentenced to nine years in prison because of their ministry, because of their faith. 
the church's property, property that these Christians have invested their personal funds into. The property was damaged on purpose or it was confiscated. Members of that church have been evicted from their homes and it is similar in many places around the world. And so for these Christians and for the Christians around the world, when they pick up their Bibles and read 1 Peter, they need to hear this message, what Peter has for them. They need to hear that their persecution is part of God's plan for his church, part of his vindication of their faith, part of their honor, part of their glory. They need to know that their faith is not in vain. The message of 1 Peter ministers powerfully to Christians across the globe. And this teaching is important for us too. Even though we might not encounter persecution to the same extent as these Christians or again our brothers and sisters across the globe, persecution is part of life in this fallen world. Sometimes in our culture, we blame it on the failure of some government entity to uphold our rights. Now, this may be somewhat true, but what this passage tells us is that we should expect suffering, not because our government has failed us, but because our God is actively at work within us. And therefore, the message of this text tells us, hang in there. God says to you this morning, hang in there. Our suffering is not the same kind of fiery trial that we hear about in this particular text. Ours, I think, is in general more like a slow burn, a slowly rising heat that requires a different kind of endurance. Everywhere we look, everywhere that we shop, we are bombarded by messaging that tells us how to live, what to think, what to believe. And many of, not all, but many of these messages don't accord with the Christian life. There are numerous complicated issues facing our culture, and it is easy for us to become just exhausted, to be ready to give up, to withdraw from the culture, to wish that things were just simpler, or to go along with everything that the culture wants us, just out of a temptation, a desire to fit in. And this daily grind, it's exhausting. But through his word this morning, God tells you, hang in there. Even in the slow grind, I am working my purposes even now. That is God's perspective on our suffering. And it enables us to live with purpose. As we look at this passage, our purposeful living has three characteristics that we can draw out of it. These three characteristics of a purposeful life. Patient endurance, positive presence, and Praise. Patient endurance, positive presence, and praise. Peter says in verse 19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. Rather than becoming fearful and withdrawing or giving in to the demands of the culture, patiently endure suffering because God is indeed at work. P. 
Peter is not saying, of course, don't ask for things to change. He's not saying don't advocate for yourselves or for others. He's not saying don't reason with your persecutors or just become a doormat and let everyone walk all over you. No, but that's not what he's saying. What he is saying is that our first response to any sort of persecution needs to be entrusting our situation to God. The word entrust that we hear in verse 19, entrust, it means to give, so, to give something over to someone for safekeeping or to turn over something to someone to care for. If you've ever handed the keys of your car to a friend because you were going to loan it to them, they were borrowing your car, that act of handing over the keys, it's entrusting. You're entrusting the care of your vehicle to someone else. And you would only do that if you trusted them. So the key to our patient endurance is trusting God. Do we trust God? I think for many of us, the answer is yes, and maybe a little no. So let's get practical. How can we grow in trusting God so that we can grow in our ability to entrust him with our lives? I think it's helpful to externalize it. When you hand over the keys to a friend, you're doing something tangible that you can remember. And I think in a similar way, it can be helpful to have something tangible to give to God. It's hard to just do this in our minds. And so here's what I want you to do. Take a piece of paper or an index card, if you have one, and write down something on it that you're having a hard time entrusting to God. This might be the salvation of a family member. It might be a situation in life where you're tempted to give up or give in from the faith. It might be a problem that's facing our culture. Maybe some of the concerns that you may have about justice or police reform or Supreme Court decisions, things that are happening in our culture. Write one of these things down, something that it's hard for you to entrust it to God. And then write down some scripture, something to remind you why to trust God. Maybe you even uh, improv on this verse that we've just read, verse 19, and say on your card, you are a faithful creator. Why trust God with this situation? You are a faithful creator. And then hand this over to the Lord. It's a tangible action. Stick it in your Bible. Put it on your desk. Hang it on the mirror in your bathroom so that you're reminded of this action. Every time you see this card, you'll be both reminded to pray, but also reminded that you have indeed entrusted this situation over to God. You can still work towards changing whatever situation you write down, of course. We're not talking about passive forgetfulness. We're talking about active trust. But I think that this act of writing it down and putting it somewhere, it physically represents us turning a situation over to God because we trust him. And the more we do this, the more of these cards that we write down, the more that we seek to actively entrust our lives to God in the particular details of our lives, the more that we'll see him answering prayer. 
the more that we will see him being the trustworthy God, the faithful creator that 1 Peter 4 verse 19 says that he is. And then we can rise from this prayerful action and get to work being a positive presence. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. In other words, keep up the good work of attractive holiness, blessing those who make fun of you because of your faith. But also, there's a flip side to this text. Make sure you're suffering for the right reasons. There are any number of wrong reasons that we can fall out of favor with our neighbors. And Peter names some of them in verse 15. And it's interesting the way that he does it. He puts a bit of a pause in the Greek, just a little bit of a pause between the third and the fourth word. So let me read it to you. Here's what, here's what Peter says, these negative examples. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or even... As a meddler, I can imagine Christians hearing this and saying something like, don't be a murderer. Got it. Great. I'm I'm good on that one. Uh, Don't be a thief. Okay, check. Sounds good. I'm good on that one too. And don't be an evildoer. Awesome. I'm doing really well according to this list. And then Peter says, meddler. Don't be a meddler. This might give us some pause. In the Greek... That word meddler that's translated here as meddler, it's a compound word. And part of that compound word includes the Greek word for overseer, sometimes translated as bishop, referring to church leaders as overseers, spiritual overseers of the flock. And so in using this word like that, Peter is saying, don't act like an overseer in someone else's life when God hasn't called you to it. Because that's meddling. That's meddling. Especially don't do this in relationships with the world. Peter says, don't become the bishop of your neighbor's lives, morally policing the non-Christians around you. One of the commentators that I was looking at this week gives some examples of meddling, and I found these examples to be quite haunting. So listen, listen to what he has to say. Here are some examples of meddling. Censuring the behavior of outsiders on the basis of claims to a higher morality, interfering with family relationships, even tactless attempts at conversion. And I had to wince a little bit when I read this. How often have I done things like this? How often have we done things like this? I think it's one of the stereotypes that non-Christians have about us in the church being holier-than-thou people who meddle with the affairs of others. So according to 1 Peter, don't meddle. Make sure that in your life, Christ is the only offense to your neighbors because, let's be honest, that's offensive enough. And keep on doing good. Be a positive presence in your community. And finally, praise. Praise God. Verse 13, rejoice. Verse 16, glorify God when you suffer. The Christian life is to be filled with praise, consumed with praise, because as verse 14 says, you are blessed. 
When we see God at work, even at work in our lives through the scorn of our neighbors testing us in these trials, we can praise. Our suffering gives us fellowship with Christ. And Peter knows this. Peter knows this very well. If we look at the book of Acts, after being arrested, after being on trial, after being beaten for his testimony about Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead, Peter and the apostles, Acts chapter 5 says, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. So don't shrink back From suffering, suffering actually does wonders for your worship. Praise God. Now, of course, suffering's hard. And there is, in this passage, a warning to not give in. And so let me quickly add a fourth action for us today. It's not in your bulletin, but it's prayer. Christians must be people of prayer. We who are not actively suffering for Christ, must pray for our church family throughout the world who are undergoing great sufferings. We need to pray that God will sustain their faith, that God will provide comfort for those who have lost loved ones, family members, and we need to pray that their witness in their suffering would actually grow the church. As the church father Tertullian wrote more than 1,500 years ago, we spring up in greater numbers the more we are mown down by you. The blood of the Christians is the seed of a new life. That seems impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And isn't that ultimately what this text is about, dear friends? about trusting God, about taking his perspective that he can do amazing things in challenging situations. Changing your perspective can change your life. One of the most powerful things that you can do when faced with persecution or any other suffering for that matter is to seek God's perspective. Seek his perspective. Here's how Johnny Erickson Tata puts it. We have an all-wise, all-powerful, all-loving God who reaches down into what otherwise would be horrible evil and wrenches out of it positive good for us and glory for himself. I am convinced that God's motive, God's purpose, his plan in the accident in which I became paralyzed, his purpose was to turn a headstrong, stubborn, rebellious kid into a young woman who would reflect something of patience, something of endurance, something of long-suffering, who would have a buoyant and lively, optimistic hope of heavenly glories above. That's how she sees God's perspective on her trial. Now, of course, this doesn't glorify suffering. She goes on to say this, suffering is still a mystery. I can't explain it all. It's a mystery, but not a mystery without direction. I think those words are so comforting to us in our times of suffering. Our Christian suffering, it's a mystery 
but it's a mystery with direction. And God's word tells us this morning that the direction of our suffering is always towards intimacy with Christ. So take up this perspective and live with purpose this week, doing good in the areas that God has called you into. This perspective will change your life. And Lord willing, it'll change the lives of those around you too. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for this assurance that you transform our suffering into a meaningful work. We do pray, as I think this text tells us to, that we would be steadfast. That we would be steadfast. That our Christian brothers and sisters throughout the world would also be steadfast in their labors. Because we desperately want to be your, your faithful people. We really desire to come through this trial and experience the glory of Christ when he comes again. And so I pray now that the spirit of glory in our lives would strengthen us, encourage us, comfort us, take away our fear, and enable us to live as doing good in your world. Be glorified in this, we pray. And may your kingdom come. In Christ's name, amen.